0: Some are still trying to decide if they really want to go or not, so here we go. We'll let them do that. Please take your copy of the Word of God, and let's look at Ezra chapter 9 today, Ezra chapter 9. Uh, We're going to actually do the entire chapter today, Uh, so don't forget that. Sometimes when I do a half a verse or something like that, that I have done more uh, for you when we get to there. I'm not going to read it yet, but I want to just kind of get you ready to listen to what I have to say today, and I hope that it uh, is all biblical, I strive for it to be. Uh, Let's just pretend for a while that I want to make a sandwich for later in the day, and let's say that I did that, and I put together my sandwich, I pack it away, maybe for my lunch, uh, and uh, I I pack it, and I make it, and all of a sudden, without me knowing it, something happens, and it becomes rotten, a rotten sandwich. Now, if that happened to me, like what I showed you up here, I would close that Styrofoam container, and I'd drop it in the trash. Why? Because it isn't worth eating. I don't want to get sick by eating a sandwich that is going to cause me to get sick. What I want to do is I want to make another sandwich, a new one. Why? Well, number one, because I'm hungry. And number two, in other words, I need it. And number two, I want to make that sandwich because I don't want to risk getting ill. I don't know what all that moldy stuff is growing on there, and I don't know what it's going to do, but I know I probably shouldn't eat it, so I'd throw it in the trash. I don't want to risk it. So I just have to make myself a new sandwich. I have to put together another sandwich. So what I do is I get out two good pieces of bread, and I slap on some slices of turkey, and I also put on Miracle Whip, and I use Miracle Whip because miracle is spiritual, and so that's why I use it. Mayonnaise sounds a little bit of the devil to me, But anyway, I use Miracle Whip, and then I take a a real slice of of real cheddar cheese, and I I slap it on that sandwich, because I like cheese. And uh, I, I did that, though, because I'm so hungry. I did notice there might be a little blackness on one side, but I put it on my sandwich anyway, and I slap it together. And then you know me, I'm also putting on things like alfalfa sprouts and tomatoes and lettuce, all the good stuff, right? See, some of you do know me. I wouldn't do that. Okay, all right. And then I, I, just, uh, I just turn that moldy cheese upside down. I slap it on my sandwich, and I, and I think, okay, I can eat that, and I'm going to eat that. Well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is, and I know what you're thinking, why on earth did you put, uh, you started all over, why did you put a piece of moldy cheese on your brand-new sandwich? I mean, that's part of the reason you threw out the other one. Why would you do that? It was contaminated. Once I did that, once I did that, I ruined my good sandwich. It was completely different. And I'm still probably going to get sick if I eat that thing. Who would do such a ridiculous thing? Throw away a, a really bad sandwich, probably had mayonnaise on it, and make yourself a good sandwich, and yet put an ingredient on there that you knew at best was iffy and probably is not going to do the trick for us because it had mold on it. That's just messed up. Who would do that? And yet... I would like to suggest to you that we as Christians in the spiritual life, so now I'm going to use the sandwich as a metaphor for the spiritual life, and I'm going to talk about our spiritual life. We as Christians do that all the time with God. We take what was made pure and right and good and wholesome, that is our salvation and we throw some sin in once in a while because it looks tasty to us or it looks good to us, and we just throw it in there and we eat it anyway, and we're all messed up. This, even though we know sin is bad for us, what will it take for us to learn our lesson? Now I want to think about this. I'm going to bring up the sandwich again so you can stick with that picture that I'm painting for you. And I want to talk about what's going on in this chapter with Ezra. Now, we remember that Ezra was one of the main leaders to go back to the land of Israel, Judah in particular, And that's where they're going to rebuild on, on Mount Zion. They're going to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. Why would you build a temple? Well, because we want to worship. Who was it that came back with Ezra to do that? People that were committed. They wanted to serve God. They wanted to love God. They wanted to have that temple back, which is the only place we can really get in and and worship him because that's the way God set it up in the Old Testament. It's important. And so these people give up their homes in Babylon. They give up all their friends or most of their friends. They travel almost 900 miles to get back to a place where they can worship God. And they want to do it right. I guarantee you, if you read uh, about this church and when it was built, You're going to find out that people wanted to do things right. There were things going on in their last churches they didn't really care for, and they said, we're going to do it right. It is always a struggle to keep people on the right path and not to throw a slice of moldy cheese on the church sandwich. And that's a difficult thing. Ezra is running into that in this chapter. Here we are, building the temple Pretty much got it done. Now we're going to make it beautiful. And out of nowhere, Ezra finds out there's mold. And it's going to be dangerous. And God isn't going to like it. Now let's read it. I'm going to kind of piecemeal this uh, instead of reading the whole thing all at once. But verses 1 to 4, Ezra 9. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, so here's the bad news, okay? Uh, We've had all this great worship at the temple. We just sacrificed a bunch of animals. We dedicated it to God. Things are going our way. Most of all, they're going God's way. Hallelujah. And then some of the leaders show up to Ezra, who is probably on a real spiritual high right now, and bring some bad news. So when these things were completed, the dedication of the temple, the worship of God, those things, the princes approached me and said, said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. Those of the Canadians, Amen. you're listening, I appreciate that. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. All the people that were in the promised land that God had them kick them out, In the first place, so they didn't become like them and set up a pure worship to Yahweh, which went sour, which ended up with them all ending up in Babylon, and before that, Assyria. So here they come with this bad news. We need you to know that even some of our spiritual leaders, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people that used to live here. Verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and for their sons, so that the holy race has been intermingled with people of the lands, those named at the end of verse 1. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. So what they're saying is, the people at the top, the leaders, are leading the way in this moldy, sickening thing that is now present in this new temple we wanted to build to God and be holy. Verse 3. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garments and my robe. This is a sign of great mourning. And I pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. Imagine the pain of pulling the hair out of your own beard and out of your own head. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. So stunned was he. He's now just sitting in mourning and silence. In these verses, what we learn, if you're following along in your bulletin there, point one, the acknowledgement of our sin before God should be taken seriously and repented of. Now listen, we're talking about believers here, right? We're talking about children of God that are in sin. Uh, it, It is brought to Ezra's attention by some unidentified leaders probably ones that hadn't sinned in this way because they'd be the only ones, you know, uh, brash enough to bring it up. The remnant has a sin within it of intermarrying with pagan spouses. Now, how do they know it's a sin? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So we're going to the book of law. Remember, this is the blueprint for how to worship and serve God. And verses 1 to 6 of Deuteronomy 7 when Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more greater and more stronger or stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God delivers them before you, he's talking about warfare, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. What do you think Ezra's thinking about right now? Are you kidding me? You're telling me that we have intermarriage here? Do you know what God said about that? We came back to start over, to make it, make it palatable to God, something that he loves, our worship, and we've already contaminated it. And it says if you do this, and especially this sin, he's going to destroy you. I'm sure he's not feeling very good, and he's not saying anything. Verse 5, But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, that's a goddess, and burn their graven images with fire, for you are a holy people. Let's use our sandwich analogy. You're a very, very fresh and good sandwich. And the Lord God chose you to be a people for his own, own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And That's why God told us to be holy, because he is holy Now, where this is going to go, and we're not going to get there today, where this is going to go and where we need to tie it to is a New Testament text that forbids a believer from marrying an unbeliever. Now, I could spend the next two chapters talking about divorce and the evils of divorce. Now, God forgives. Yes, I know that. But I'm not. I'm going to talk about intermarriage with unbelievers. I have uh, too many young people that don't even care whether they date a believer or an unbeliever. So just keep that in the back of your mind. This is where this is going to go. We're going to talk about not being unequally yoked with people who don't know Christ. Most of the time, that decision is made before they even start dating. So we'll get there, but I want you to know that. Well, the reason it's against the law is because God said not to do it, and Ezra would have encountered this about four months into his return, so it didn't take long. He was apparently unaware of the issue before uh, at this time. Now, as a leader, he is aware, and he has to do something because leaders must lead. God's people suffer when leaders don't lead. Here's the problem. Israel had a chance to make a new sandwich with God. In return, they could be something spiritually palatable to him, spiritually pleasing to him. He wouldn't get that... Uh, that feeling we get when we open that, you know, that styrofoam container and everything is rotten in there. Get rid of it. Then we take Lysol and clean up where it was. God doesn't want that. He wants something fresh and new and clean and pure. But now Ezra is made aware of the new, uh, that the new sandwich has a caustic element of sin in it and they cannot move forward with God and with worship uh, because this sandwich makes him sick. He doesn't want it, just like I wouldn't want what we saw on the screen earlier. The sin in the sandwich is their unfaithfulness in intermarrying with those who do not know or care about Yahweh. They are unsaved persons. They lie latent or dormant in the hearts of the Israelites, and they will be used of the enemy to dilute, pollute, and destroy the pure devotion to Yahweh that God really desires to have from them. They are a filthy fifth element in the fabric of the people of God. The dangers are evident to a spiritual man like Ezra. Everybody knows what happened to Solomon, how all these wives and concubines that he married, it turned his heart away from the living God so that he was even building little temples for other gods in Israel. And he completely became unpalatable to God. Of interest is that foremost in the problem are the princes and the rulers. If our leaders can't even be pure, what do you think is going to happen with those who follow? The church will never, ever rise above the spiritual level of her leaders. If Satan can defeat the leaders through sin, he can destroy the entire church. It was no different in the religious life of the ancient Israelites' leadership, the character of them... Is critical, that's better than sniffing, is critical to the spiritual maturity of the church. Now I'm taking some, some points out of the Old Testament and I'm applying them to us. It was true for them as well. In verses 3 and 4, the response of the spiritual person, uh, that's the person who loves God and shows it by the way that they live, uh, to the revelation of the presence of sin is to demonstrate sincere grief and repentance. That's what our response to our sin should be. Not, oh, God will get over it or he'll forgive me anyway. Uh, He isn't really upset with this. Yes, he is. This is the normal way in the ancient world, uh, what Ezra did to show inner grief and serious repentance and great fear, implying dismay and discouragement. The people have a sin that will rot them. The question is, Are these the people who will renew the worship of Israel? Can we take this contaminated group and build something holy? Not with contamination in it, we can't. It's got to be cleaned up. So they took what seemed to be a clean sandwich. Now we find out there's deadly mold in it. Does God delight in being given worthless things in worship? Does God delight in that which is less than holy, those who live in sin and try to hide it from God? No, he doesn't. Malachi 1, 6 to 10 speaks to this. Malachi 1, 6 to 10. God says a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? He's talking to the children of Israel. If I'm your father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says Yahweh of hosts. To you, O priests, who despise my name, but you say, God, how have we despised your name? So God is accusing them of despising his name, and they go say, oh, really? How have I done that? Uh, Prove that to me. And God goes and proves it. Verse 7. You are presenting defiled food on my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say... The table of the Lord is to be despised. In other words, by their actions, you're despising the table of the Lord. And he goes on to say, but when you present the blind for the sacrifice, is that not evil? I thought we were supposed to bring clean animals that had no defect. They're bringing, you know what, cut that one out. Let's take him to the temple. He's blind. We don't want him. The price will go down on him. Let's give that to God. Well, that one's got a broken leg. Bring that too. We'll we'll give that to God. That's That's what they were doing. He said, well, that's ridiculous. It is, but it's what we do. And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? Why are you giving it to God? Give it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would the governor be pleased if that was his gift? The answer is no. Or would he receive you kindly? Well, no, says Yahweh of hosts. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your, on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates so that you might not unceasingly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God says, I'm sick and tired of you bringing your junk. That's not what I asked for. I asked for you to bring me the best, and yet you pollute my offering. God said, I am so sick of it. I wish somebody had enough spirituality to shut the gates of the temple and keep you hypocrites out of here. We have to be very sure. That we don't live in such a way that God sometimes says, you know, I wish the free church and Smith Center would just lock the doors on Sunday morning than to come as a bunch of hypocrites who aren't living for me and doing what I'm supposed to do. That's what we have to watch. That's what we don't want God to say about our spiritual life. Don't we want to please him? Yes. Now in verses 5 through 9, we learn that though our sins are covering our heads, in other words, we're over nick deep in them, we recognize God's grace And loving kindness are available or able to revive us, 5 through 9. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation. He had humbled himself in this. Even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to Yahweh, my God. And I said, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you. He says, I can't even look you in the face, God. My God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads And our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the lands to the sword of captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is to this day. He's saying, our fathers took this path. They were this way. They did this to you. And you carried them away. But he says, here's what you've done with us in verse verse 8. But now... For a brief moment, grace has been shown from Yahweh, our God, to leave us as an escaped remnant, to give us a peg. He means a stake in history, uh, in this holy place, that our God may be enlightened, I'm sorry, that God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. God brought us back. He gave us the chance to do something great, and now look at us. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. But he has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to raise up the house of God, the temple he's talking about, to restore it and its ruins and give us a wall of Judah and Jerusalem. They're saying, uh, saying, look what God has done for us. He gave us a chance. Now we're going to ruin it with moldy, sinful cheese. In verse 5, Ezra rises up from feeling his humiliation and his repentance to get on his knees and entreat the forgiveness through the grace of God. We have no other recourse than to throw ourselves on the fact that God is forgiving to sinners and he is loyal to those who love him. He is now on his knees, Ezra is with his hands stretched out to to Yahweh. It is a posture that demonstrates that he has nothing in his hands to offer God for the offense of God. But repentance. God, I can't, there's nothing to give you for that. But repent. In verse 6, it is such a good thing to not be complacent about our sin that we don't, I mean, sorry, it is such a good thing to not be so complacent about our sin that we don't even feel embarrassed for what we have done and ashamed of our iniquity. And I see that all over in our culture. People sin and they're not embarrassed, they're not ashamed. They do it with gusto and boldness, and then they taunt other people and authorities to say, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And that's not a good way to be. We should act like Ezra and like David did when Nathan confronted him with his sin. Ezra feels humiliated. What does the recognition of sin that we commit do in your heart, and what does it do in mine? How do we handle that? Do we handle it with repentance and sorrow? Or do we handle it, handle it high-handedly and say, God, what are you going to do about it? In verse 7, he recounts the fact that Israel has a long history of denying God and his word. God always respo- is responding to people's sin. They have suffered because of their sin. They have been killed, oppressed, ruled over, disgraced, and exiled And then still they don't learn and they sin. And that's just like us. We know better. But we think we can get away with it or God isn't watching or it's not that big a deal. Sin is always a big deal to God. It's kind of like what does God have to do to us to get through to us about the problem of staying clean instead of wallowing in our sin again? I want to read from Second Peter, chapter two, verse twenty-two, where Peter, quoting Proverbs twenty-six, eleven, says this: "It has happened to them according to the to the true proverb: a dog returns to its own vomit." I've seen that many times in life. That's true. They do. It's disgusting. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. The sow gets all cleaned up. What does she do? She wants to go back and wallow in the mire. Dog vomits something up. We usually think of uh, vomitus as something you don't keep. You flush it. The dog goes back and eats it. And that's the way sometimes we act as believers. In verses 8 and 9, Ezra recounts the amazing grace and loyal love that God had given them. This includes the fact that he gave them a chance to put a nail, a peg in history, and start all over with the temple and do it right. They have a stake there, S-T-A-K-E. In his grace, he granted a reviving to these folks, the preservation of life, the sustenance of life, relief, recovery, renewal, freedom from bondage. He brings up that they were slaves, but God extended loving kindness, loyal love in order to restore the ruins of their city and their temple. This is so they could finally belong, finally have a place for them and their God to meet. The point, the point Ezra makes is look at all that God has done for us and then look how we have treated him. And we could apply that to us in our lives as well. Let's read verses 10 to 15. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. He just admits it. We're not the the, uh, palatable sandwich we thought we were. We did a little bit good, but we've messed up. Verse 11, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with its uncleanness of people of the lands and their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take your daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance for your sons Forever. Now, he just quoted Deuteronomy 23.6. That's exactly what God said before they ever got here. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than what our iniquities deserve, you have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people who commit these abominations Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction? And, of course, these rhetorical answers are all yes. Until there is no remnant, nor any who escape. O Yahweh God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left and escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. I went all the way down there, um, 10 to 15. Despite God's goodness, we often sin and have no personal merit of our own to stand before him. When we're in that position, there's just forgiveness, that's all. And we ask God from our hearts to give it to us. In verse 10, like David, we might as well come clean. We sinned, we have forsaken your commandments, Lord. We have no excuse. In verse 11, we know the commands of God were simply choose to do otherwise other than sin when we are confronted with sin. But we choose otherwise sometimes. God wants us, and we just don't listen. God warns us, and we just don't listen. Perhaps we really think that we know better than God does. We live in an unclean land among unclean people, those who do not have a relationship with Jesus. They lived in an unclean land Uh, people that didn't know God, but also they were having trouble serving him as well, and their guilt is greater because they knew better. It is a land full of abominations to God, and from one end to the other, it is full of impurity. And that sounds like America as well. They were told not to intermarry, but they did it anyway. That sounds like American Christianity as well. A man by the name of Dr. Martin said of this, foreign marriages contaminated Israel, fostered the foreigner's prosperity, weakened Israel's spiritually, spiritually, and decreased her opportunity to enjoy the land's crops. You shot yourself in the foot by not doing what God wanted you to do. They would, if they obeyed, be able to leave prosperity to their children, and not prosperity just of land and money and hills and trees and crops and and equipment, but spiritual prosperity. I think we seldom consider how our sins will affect our children until it has. In verse 13, we, like Ezra, would do well to recognize that God has not dealt with us according to our sins. In other words, our sins are at a certain level, and even though God doesn't put up with sin, he has been gracious to us, Despite that, Psalm 103, uh, verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. not that amazing? We sin against him up to here, and God decides to forgive us, and the consequences are down here somewhere. They deserve to be up here, or at least here. And yet God, God is so gracious and loves us, he doesn't do that. He recognizes, that is Ezra, that God is gracious in withholding punishment that they really deserve. If that weren't true, my friends, we would have no chance of living a life that is truly worth anything. Because no one deserves to be acquitted by God. No one deserves forgiveness of sin. It's only by God's love and grace that it happens. And here's the point in verse 14. If we're going to start fresh, if we're going to start over, we need to do it. And we can't have black moldy cheese on that new sandwich. When we sin and we go to God and we repent of a sin, God wants us to say, okay, I've sinned. And God says, okay, I forgive you. But he wants you to go on and do better. He wants me to go on and not do the same old sin that I did before. Ezra knows that that angers God enough that he might just wipe them out and start over. God doesn't tolerate or play with sin the way we love to. Hebrews 10.31 may not be a verse people like, but it's in the Bible. It says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing. God hates sin with a passion. How much does God hate sin? Well, he built a place to take care of it. And we call, it a, we call it hell, and it's forever and ever and ever. That's how much he hates it. How gracious is he? We go to the cross and find a man dying for sins he didn't commit for people that hadn't even been born yet even because he loved them so much. Loves them so much. And he's predisposed to forgive. Thank God his father for that. Verse 15, Ezra knows that guilt prevents a person's acceptance before God. Not, not their salvation. But do you want to be used of God? Do you want to please God? Then this is how you want to live. You want to live clean. Aren't we glad that all of our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus? Amen? Okay, what then should be our attitude about sin in our life when God forgives us and gives us graciously another chance? Sin says it is smart to continually destroy ourselves by continuing to sin or by returning to sin. Like a pig to the mud, or like a dog to the vomit. And God wants us to know that isn't true. That's not what we should do. And here's my point. We gain no good ground in this life by repeating the sins that we have been forgiven for. Now, yeah, we're going to end up doing some, but we're not going to get anything by doing it. Not, not anything good. I have personally witnessed people sinning in their marriage. Been there when they got Forgiveness and later commit the same sin that got them in that position in the first place, that they had repented of. And that's what the Israeli exiles are in the middle of. They shouldn't have done it. And that is what we as Christians do. And that's why we're talking about it. People haven't changed, have they? Even believers don't change much. This is not the path Jesus wants us to take. Would you agree with that? None of us has immunity to the consequences of sin the first time we commit it. I'm talking about consequences. I didn't say forgiveness. We have that. But there's consequences, and God often lets us experience those consequences. What about the second time we commit it, or the third time, or the fourth time that we commit it? It doesn't get any better. (laughs) It just gets worse. I'm trying to encourage us to learn from ancient Israel. And if you're going to make a new sandwich, keep it fresh. I just fear that sometime today somebody will say, what did the pastor preach on? He said, he preached on sandwiches. (laughs) I'm talking spiritually here, right? Let's look at the uh, application to this. Number one, friends, when we have a clean start, a second chance, we need to do it in a clean way. We need to make up our mind with God's help to stay clean. Number two, I think we learned that it is good for us to determine not to repeat the same sins that got us into trouble the first time. Not repeat the same sins that got us into trouble the first time. I don't even remember the program. I don't remember what I was watching, but it was a program where this guy was a, a lawyer dude, and he had cheated on his wife and just about lost his family and all this stuff. And time had gone on, and uh, then this other lady wants to flirt with him and befriend him, and says, well, why don't we just go discuss this at a picnic? And he said, I cannot do that, and I will not do that. The price is too high. I think that's kind of what we're talking about. It's good for us to determine not to repeat the same sin that got us into trouble in the first place. The book of Job says that Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look on a virgin, meaning not to look at her to lust after her. That's a covenant made. We can make covenants with God and with ourselves, not to repeat those mistakes. Thirdly, as, as they did in this passage, we should pray about the sins of our community because we are tied to our community. We need to pray about the sins of the national offices because we're tied to them. We're tied to local government. They need our prayers. Would you say that? you Can, can you tell they need our prayers? <laughs> I think so. That's pretty obvious, right? Because we're tied to a community, we need to pray for the community and the well-being of the community. We need to pray what, what was prayed in the book of Chronicles. Lord, Lord uh, if we just would repent and turn from our wicked ways, that's what we need to have happen. Fourthly, disobedience, and I mean to God, endangers the plans that God has for us for good. How many times have we missed a blessing or missed a ministry or part of a ministry because we weren't fit, we were walking against God, not with him, and we had sin in our life that we weren't going to deal with? I don't know. But I'm sure with all of us, because I know we're all sinners, it has happened. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't do that? If we didn't load the gun that we shoot ourselves in the foot with? Number five, and the last one. It is a sin to not make a break from detestable practices and corruption. It is a sin. Now, I want to end, uh, although it's extremely applicable uh, to our day and age, as is all of the Old Testament, would you just look at Hosea? All right. Daniel, Hosea. Chapter 6 and verse 6. God has been talking about his people. He says, what do I have to do with you? They're in trouble. God says in verse 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God isn't so much caught up with ritual of religious activity. God is caught up with the condition of a person's heart. Now, if you'd look with me for just one last time, the last book of the Old Testament to Malachi. I'm sorry, I don't want to go to Malachi. I want to go to Micah. Forget that. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Okay, and it is chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. So Micah 6, 6 through 8. Our prophet asks, With what shall I come to Yahweh and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, does Yahweh take delight in a thousand rams, in thousands of rams, and ten thousand rivers of oil? The answer to that is no. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. He has told you, so we don't have to ask what God wants. He told us, O oh man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. My encouragement to each of us this morning, me included, obviously, right? If your sandwich has some mold in it, get rid of it. Build a new one. Keep it that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you and praise you for your word how appropriate it is for us we who have to make decisions about doing what is right on a daily basis I pray that we would work to keep ourselves clean and to keep ourselves spiritually palatable before you so that you will be delighted in our presence in your name we pray amen
1: you would please stand we will close by singing i worship you almighty god